I think a sprinkling of Ellington can be super helpful, but it's not that in itself to an end. I don't think that's helpful at all. That's today's guest, jazz director, professor, and composer Alan Baylock, talking about some unintended consequences of the Duke Ellington revival in music education. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire, here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Alan Baylock is the director of the multi-Grammy-nominated One O'Clock Lab Band at the University of North Texas and previously served 20 years as chief arranger for the United States Air Force Airmen of Note. The Alan Baylock Jazz Orchestra has recorded three critically acclaimed CDs and toured the United States for more than 15 years. Alan's music has been performed and recorded by jazz greats Regina Carter, Paquito de Rivera, Maynard Ferguson, Joshua Redman, Arturo Sandoval, Doc Severinsen, and many more. Find Alan's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? Fire? <laughs> I was thankful for the insistence that no matter the level of player, interaction during improv can and should be a focus. What about you, Steve? I particularly enjoyed our discussion about the path jazz education has taken the last few decades. He got me thinking about a few things I hadn't considered. Lots of little intriguing tidbits here, including legitimizing the laptop computer as an instrument for students in collegiate music programs. This is fun and helpful stuff. Let's get to Alan Baylock. Alan Baylock, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, one of the first things we are told or that we tell our students is that in order to speak or play the language of jazz, we must listen to it. And in my experience, the advice often ends there, uh, even though I think the next steps, what exactly do we start with? How do we listen? What do we listen for? Those create some challenges, especially for our younger or less experienced students. So how do you go about teaching students how to listen to jazz? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing I talk about is active listening where they're not doing their homework, they're not even driving their car, they're only listening. And that sometimes can be a lost art. I know a lot of times music for people is just background, but especially for musicians, people that are learning jazz in particular, active listening where that's all you're doing is critically important. And yeah, I've heard people say or ask, yeah, what do you listen to? Oh, just anything, anything at all. Yeah, I don't think that's real helpful. When we talk about big band, I can say, listen to the Atomic Basie album. And if you want to learn how to swing or learn about that era of big band jazz that still influences today's big band jazz, listen to that album in particular. So yeah, it's, it's such a critical element. And the music, the printed music, we, even at North Texas, or maybe especially at North Texas, sight reading is a highly valued skill. However, to interpret that stuff that looks like Mozart, European classical music notation, how do you get jazz out of that? Well, the only way is to listen. And it's listening critically to the style in particular. And, you know, I, I go back to Lee Morgan also. I'm a trumpet player. So to me also, Lee Morgan, the way he phrases is a quintessential version of back accenting and the way we're supposed to phrase jazz. So a young player who again, sees these, what look like straight eighth notes with no articulations, no slur markings, no anything. Well, how do I know not to go da 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 Well, you got to listen to Lee Morgan or the Atomic, the Atomic Basie, and uh, you'll have a much better idea of how to interpret it. 
So what if you had a friend who, or you meet some new neighbors and you go out for dinner with them and they ask you what you do and you say, I, uh, I'm the director of jazz studies at the University of North Texas. And they don't know what that means and they're not that impressed. And instead they say, oh, jazz. Yeah, I don't, I don't really like jazz. What recording would you give them to say, no, no, give, give it a chance. Try this. I think you might like it because you're associating it with anytime there's, you know, in a movie and it's got to be something, you know, cerebral or crazy. You hear John Coltrane and or Thelonious Monk and and that's what you think jazz is. But there's so much more to it. What recordings might you give someone like that? Yeah, I think I would go with Miles Davis kind of blue, one of the best selling albums of all time. I think the reason that it is the best selling album jazz album of all time is because it's accessible on many different levels. So if my neighbor did, knew nothing about jazz, I could just simply say, listen to the difference between Miles Davis and how sparse he plays and then John Coltrane and how many notes he plays and explain to them, of course, the song form. They're playing the same form as the melody over and over, but they're communicating with the drummer and the pianist at the same time with little musical nuggets. But for me, that album at one time is both very deep, but can be listened to on a very superficial level. So yeah, I would say Miles Kind of Blue is what I would start with for them. But I wouldn't just say, hey, check this out because it's awesome. I'd say, listen to the way John Coltrane tells his story and listen to the way the pianist is punctuating behind that solo. Listen to the way the drummer's interacting with John Coltrane a little knowledge can go a long way. And even I had colleagues in the Air Force band who were professional military musicians that didn't understand that, no, we don't just get up and play whatever we want. There's form, there's logic, there's things that we practice in terms of improvisation. And I think if that's a mystery for musicians, it's absolutely a, a mystery for non-musicians. So even just saying, the melody is 32 bars long, and then they improvise new melodies on that same chord progression. So those same chords that happen under the melody, these musicians are interpreting those and playing brand new melodies, and that's what their improvisation is. So it's not like some woo-woo thing that just comes from outer space. It's functional music theory being put to its ultimate place in real life. And I, th I think that would be helpful because it is, it, it's such a mystery, especially the, the heavier stuff. You're talking about Thelonious Monk, the more ethereal stuff, even the, the stuff, you know, Ornette Coleman that gets even further outside. It's like, oh, you won't, you won't get, it's, oh, it's art. You don't have to understand it. You just have to respect it for art. But even that there's form and there's melody and there's logic and things unfolding. So in addition to recommending one of those quintessential albums or maybe Herbie's Maiden Voyage, I would recommend them listening to how everybody's interacting with each other. And it's just not a free-for-all. Although that's a great record also. I think that's an Art Blakey album. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a great reminder. Your experience with your colleagues in the, in the Air Force band I think we often find that among our uh, maybe band or orchestra instrumental teachers who who haven't had much of a jazz background that they kind of they 
don't know that it's very similar in terms of form and there's a structure and oftentimes just explaining some of that basic stuff to help them understand that uh, helps them kind of go a step further towards maybe making it less scary or less like an other sort of music and more like an additional kind of music making that I already sort of understand. So that's, a, yeah. that's fascinating to me that at the highest levels of music making, your colleagues, some of them, just the idea that there's a basic form that it also follows in jazz was something that hadn't really occurred to some of them. Right. It, it eluded them. And I think it's a, it's a nice invitation because they do understand form. They do understand melody. Um, so if, if it's something less like just getting up and doing whatever you want, yeah, it's an invitation for them to understand on their level and uh, appreciate it at their level. Well, if we all agree that jazz is an important part of our American culture and that learning about swing music is important and that making creative music together is a valuable experience, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the big band has a problem in that much of our repertoire is limited to saxophones, trombones, trumpets, piano, bass, guitar, and drum set. Uh, do you see this as an issue? Does North Texas give opportunities to learn jazz to students who play those so-called non-traditional jazz instruments? Uh, and if so, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, we do, actually. And it's um, one of the things that was spearheaded by our dean, John Richmond, when he got here in 2016, the same year I got here. He wanted it to be more universal. Um, so we have jazz violin majors. We have a jazz, you know, jazz cellists. We have jazz viola majors. Not only do they play with some of the big bands, but they have their own group as well called the Jazz String Lab. Um, and the again the idea was to bridge the gap between non-jazz and jazz because a lot of musicians now that are coming to school they didn't grow up with that huge divide that people of my generation and older grew up with where there's classical and then there's jazz so a lot of the students here who were classical majors really wanted to learn how to improvise in the jazz setting um in terms of uh outside of the jazz division here you can now major on laptop at the University of North Texas. So you don't even have to play a traditional instrument to become a music major here. So a laptop can be your major instrument uh, if you're a composition major or another major. As we look at a middle school or high school program, and let's say you're at a festival or working a clinic with a, with a high school group and they're playing some of your music, and there was not a part written for the oboe or for the violin, but they added one and it's doubling something that was already written. How important is it to you that, because part of it, I, I feel like we've inherited this tradition where there's all these defining parts that make a jazz band. And one of those is that it's one player per part. <laughs> and, and to me, like that's a really cool thing, but in terms of just basic jazz education, I would have that down my priority list. And I'd rather have more students getting the experience, improvising, swinging, whatever, than the opportunity to play a third trombone part all by themselves. That if they're playing the third trombone part and there's a cello player who wants to be in there and they're playing the part along with them, I have no problem with that. Where do you stand on that? Maybe people taking your charts and, and adding instruments that you didn't already write. Oh, I'm all in favor. It's like, for me, when I get something published, I understand that it's in the hands of uh, an educator who can do whatever they want. Um, and I've only heard my stuff really messed up a couple times. Um, <laughs> and that's always disheartening. 
Um, but usually the educators are smart and, you know, well-trained enough that they understand what to do. I often, especially for the stuff I do with Alfred publications, I'll do a vibes part. And the vibes part's good for anybody that's playing flute or oboe or violin. They can easily just play the top line of the vibes part and it'll be, it'll be a nice uh, sonorous sound and they'll be in their decent register and stuff. Clarinet, of course, it gets lost back in the trumpet section. But if you have a clarinet player playing the lead trumpet part, it's in a decent register. Again, if they're in the back row with the trumpets, probably without a mic, it'll get lost. So I like that to be up front. I mean, I've seen bassoonists play the trombone part. I've heard French horn players play in the trombone section. And I think it's great. I think that's liberating to hear someone who directs groups at the highest possible level like you and writes music uh that that's an okay thing to do i think there are people out there who who encourage that uh but maybe don't have quite the gravitas perhaps that you do and and my thinking was always when i first started a flute player would come to me and say i'd like to play in jazz band and i would say you need to learn to play the saxophone because that was (laughs) how it was when i was in school Mm -hmm. and if that kid didn't want to play the saxophone then they didn't end up in jazz band and that kid wasn't going to probably major in music anyway. And then I totally lost a possible future consumer of jazz who might pay to see the Lincoln center band when they come through town. And so, yeah, any more recently, I'm just coming around to, yeah, let the, let the cello player play. Don't make them learn a completely new instrument. If they're, if they are excited about this music, then that's a cool thing. And if they go and get a a performance degree at North Texas, maybe they can focus on maybe a, you know, an instrument that might be better suited for full-time big band employment. But in the meantime, let's just reach the students where they are. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I think, um, it benefits them because they get to experience jazz, even if it's not improvisational at all, even if it's just the written music, but they'll understand a little bit about the swing thing. Uh, but uh, everything else that they get from an ensemble, blend, pitch, intonation, all that stuff is slightly different, obviously, than an orchestra or a concert band. So it's another opportunity for them to learn how to play their instrument within that style. So earlier you mentioned you've only heard your music just really butchered a couple of times in terms of them kind of cutting it up or editing it. Um, Let's not talk about that, but uh, (laughs) how about when you hear your music performed, what are some of the most common things you find yourself thinking, oh, they, if they just would have done that or, or maybe had spent a little bit more time on this, uh, it wouldn't have taken that much more time or, expert jazz knowledge to get the product a little bit better what what are some of the most common instances yeah well both are pretty easy the first one is the tempo so in every published chart actually i don't know if i've ever written a chart and didn't put a tempo marking beyond just whatever medium swing or up tempo swing an actual metronome marking is there because that's the way the music was written i mean that's critical to interpret the music correctly and I think that's one thing that gets mixed up or messed up is if the director either counts it off too quickly or too slowly and or the rhythm section speeds it up or slows it down and they they don't stop the band. So I think getting the right tempo is critical. But even more important, the one glaring deficiency that I hear almost every time I hear one of my pieces played is the lack of articulation, differ, the different articulations the the staccatos are too long 
and the long notes are too short and it's they're they're too similar so if i write a staccato it should be really short if i write something with a tenuto over it should be really long so that's that's a big beef that, and that's i hear that all the time so when we were on tour in florida we judged a jazz festival and i heard 12 bands and i probably wrote it 13 times on the day when you judge 12 13 or 15 bands how many times do you hear two seconds to midnight? Uh, <laughs> my record is is four uh, at a festival that I help organize. Yeah, it is. That's wow. That's one of my older charts too. So it's it's been around the block. Uh, it's always fun to hear that one. And that one I appreciate because it lets the guitarist not be Joe Pass. Do you have any theories as to why in jazz band we? Because I agree with you about the ignoring of the articulation. And that is something that I, I'll hear a group and think, you wouldn't do that with your concert band. <laughs> you, you would be playing short, detached on a march. Like why, and, I, and I can't figure out why there's that lack of attention to articulation when it switches over to the jazz band. Yeah, I think I, my theory is that the swing, when we tell people to swing, that's often interpreted as being lazy because that second eighth note, is lazy. It comes later than everything else. And so if they're thinking that swing is lazy, then the articulation gets lazy as well. So I think the staccatos get not interpreted correctly because it's laid back and lazy. And that that's my theory. That's a great theory. <laughs> yeah. That all of a sudden that light bulbs went off that <laughs> yeah man lay back keep it loose right. keep it relaxed don't be so tense don't exactly. yeah we're inviting a lack of precision that's exactly mm -hmm. right yep laid back does not mean sloppy i i have two yep. theories one is that directors don't listen enough mm -hmm. and they also over program and so then all they have time to worry about is notes and rhythms yeah sure and I think that's another reason that I'm such a big fan of the um, that Count Basie album, Atomic Basie, because they play the even with the reverb that's on there, which is pretty wet. Um, they play short. Even the ends of the phrases are shorter than we normally do now. And I think that's obviously the proper way to do it. How, in your opinion, has jazz or the jazz education scene changed for better or worse the last couple of decades? I can't begin to answer that without mentioning Wynton Marsalis. Again, for better or for worse, personally, I'm a big fan of, of Winton himself. I'm sometimes bummed out when I hear groups that I think should be pushing the envelope play only Ellington. I think a, a sprinkling of Ellington can be super helpful, but it's not that in itself to an end. I, I don't think that's helpful at all. But I think Winton has put jazz education much more prominently in the eyes of the American public and the American music educator. And... He does so many things so well, including play trumpet, but it's demonstrated in the way he speaks so eloquently. And I think because of that, there is a focus. If we were going to think before Winton, there was more of a focus on pushing the envelope, doing new things, contemporary things, um, having the Black American music of the time, which is popular, infiltrate the jazz feel and the jazz sensibilities of people. But I think that's less now. Some people can interpret that as looking backwards. But if we're talking about the 30s, 40s, and 50s as being, or even the 60s as some golden era in jazz, there's certainly been a more of a focus on that. 
And does it make it more of a museum institution and less of a important cultural voice? I don't know. It's not me to interpret that. But for me, that's the biggest difference. And obviously it's within our lifetime because Winton is not that much older than me, but he's had a profound impact on jazz education at all levels, but middle school, high school, collegiate, professional. And again, it's a certain way of viewing jazz and a certain focus, which um, limits it to a couple decades of very important musicians and very important styles of music. At the same time, of course, jazz is so versatile and can interpret and absorb all kinds of things at the same time. So whereas the Jazz at Lincoln Center is going to sound a certain way, there are 20 other bands that are really pushing the, the, the boundaries, not even just free jazz, but again, interpreting and letting the music of today, the popular music of today, join in with jazz. And jazz is very flexible like that. It's always been like that. It's, it's a very flexible art form that can live and be influenced by and influence other genres of music at all times. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many high schools that are focused on essentially Ellington now that it wasn't the same 20 years ago. Certainly wasn't the same when I was growing up. And I, again, I won't judge it. There's pros and cons. You mentioned that prior to the the influx of the essentially Ellington influence, that the black music of the time was having a bit more influence in jazz, jazz band music. Are you referring to 80s, 90s? And that would be like hip hop, that that kind of thing? Or could, could you talk a little bit more about what you felt it looked like that it does not look like as much sure. anymore? Yeah, I would say 70s and 80s, um, late 60s, 70s, 80s. If you go to Freddie Hubbard's stuff, you know, the, the stuff that he was doing in the late 70s, early 80s, it's very funk and soul influenced. Uh, Donald Byrd, of course, Herbie, Miles, um, some of the, the biggest names in jazz. He even the big bands like Woody Herman was playing was he's playing rock and roll tunes at the end of his career. You know, he still did the Apple Honey and things like that. But um a lot of the jazz musicians at the time were were embracing the electronics, embracing soul R&B and making that a part of their own sound. Um, I, I don't think it's I mean, there is certainly hip hop influence now um, with neo soul and all that stuff. I don't think that's as mainstream. And I don't see Chris Potter or Maria Schneider or um, other heavyweights really going down that that direction. Of course, there's people like Robert Glasper and others who are, but, um, you know, for Freddie Hubbard to come out and play, you know, bebop and hard bop and then do a funk album or a soul album, or even Christopher Cross's, you know, tune. I mean, that's, that says something. And that doesn't, I don't think that happens as much now. Again, the prominent jazz musicians of our day, they're not embracing it like, like their predecessors in the 70s and 80s. And what I find fascinating is, as we try to argue, you know, the earlier question I asked you, what would you tell your neighbor who doesn't know anything about jazz to get him excited about jazz? That type of music, what 
that's pretty easy to get people excited about. Freddie Hubbard playing funk. You don't need to understand bebop or, or sharp 11s to enjoy that. And people can like that right away. And I love, I love Ellington, you know, musical idol of mine, but there is a lot of that music that if you play that for, for someone, you're going to have to explain to them why it's good. <laughs> They're not going to have an inherent love for it. So I think it's interesting, this idea that that has become so prevalent. And of course he was important and it's a giant and we need to know about those things. But if that becomes the whole thing, we are closing ourselves off from all of this other music that might actually be easier uh, to get kids excited about jazz or or other listeners excited about. And I, I hadn't thought about that as a as a potential downside of that, essentially, Ellington. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's like when I do an Allstate or even when I'm with the one o'clock, I want to know what everybody's listening to. And I'm always fascinated if I say, what's your favorite jazz musician? That might be one thing. And that's always fascinating, too, how many people say J.J. Johnson which thrills me. But when I say favorite non-jazz musician, um, oh, I learn all kinds of stuff. And um, to, you know, there's not enough music written in the style that they're listening to right now. But it, at least if I'm going to, I'm not going to force anybody, but if I'm going to, uh, I'll use the word force. If I'm going to force them into playing the swing tune by Sammy Nestico and appreciate it, I want to be able to appreciate what they're listening to also, what they're excited about. And I think if I'm open to what they're playing me, they'll be more open to what I'm playing them. And uh, last, do you have some favorite go-to strategies you find yourself most often using in your rehearsals, either to address style or improvising or anything else that our listeners might be able to implement in their own rehearsals? So one of my go-to things, I guess, is just the verbalization and this singing of the style. The notes and the rhythms can come, but again, since the music doesn't look like what it's supposed to sound like, style is usually the thing that we work on the most. One thing that educators have a tendency to shy away from is working with the rhythm section, in particular the drummer. But yeah, so I, I would say that the go-to thing is just verbalizing the style and making sure everybody's listening back to the lead trumpet player. Well, Alan Baylock, thank you very much for joining us today to share your insight on these important topics. Do you have time for a couple of lightning round questions to close things down? Oh, yeah, sure. I'd love to. What's your favorite place to eat in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? Uh, in Dallas, it's Pecan Lodge, which is a great barbecue place. And in Denton itself, I would, I guess I would have to say uh, Boca 31, which is a Mexican restaurant. Well, it's beyond that, but it's wonderful. What is a musical artist or piece of music that you wish more people knew about? It's going to sound funny about Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, Pathetique. It's just a perfect work of art. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners, ideally that doesn't have anything to do with music? Well, I would say Effortless Mastery, but in addition to that, Power of Now, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is a composition or arrangement of yours that you are very proud of and you want more people to know about? So probably not two seconds to midnight. <laughs> um, it's too hard for most bands to play, but I did an arrangement of Hey Jude that I like. I will have to check that out. <laughs> and finally, if you weren't a musician or teacher, what career do you think you might have had? Well, what career I would have wanted and would have had are two different things. Um before I got into music, well, before I was 10, I, I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. 
Um, and when I was in, in the Air Force band, I was playing in three or four adult softball leagues. So probably, yeah, probably Major League Baseball player. Alan Baylock, it's been awesome to have you on the program today. Um, I'd love to say I'm going to go listen to Tchaikovsky, but I think I'm going to go listen to some Freddie Hubbard. It's, it's been fun to listen to two jazz geeks geek out about jazz. So thanks so much for this. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a thrill. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musiced insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.